The first of tonight's three readings comes from Isaiah 43, and that can be found on page 585 and continues over the page. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight, and honoured, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. For everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Our second reading is from Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. And that can be found on page 947. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, for you are no longer a slave but a child, And if a child, then also an heir through God. The third reading is from the Gospel of John, starting at verse 1. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 1. And that's on page 862. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, 
who has made him known. Uh, good evening. Welcome to church tonight. Let me extend my welcome to you. My name is Angus, one of the pastors here at Christchurch Inner West. And um, it's really great to have you here. If you're new or visiting tonight, if you're not familiar with us here at um, St. John's, then it may help you to know that we're in a short two-week teaching series uh, last week, this week, and actually going through into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Man, I've got to take this off or I'll think that I've got a microphone. Um, uh, going through to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day where we are exploring what the Gospel of John teaches us about the meaning of Christmas. Uh, and these first verses of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, are some of the most beautifully crafted words in all of Scripture. They speak to the deepest longings and needs of the human soul. They give texture to our story and into the barrage of voices and noises competing for our time and attention. They pierce through with breathtaking insight. The one born in the manger at Christmas time is the one true living God. And in making this claim, as John does, one of the things these verses show us is a number of reasons why Jesus came into the world. Last week we looked at the metaphor of Light in the darkness, Jesus came to bring light in a world that desperately needs it. A world struggling under the darkness of injustice, evil, broken relationships, natural disasters and man-made catastrophes. And this week we look at a second metaphor. Jesus comes to make strangers family. I can't think of many messages that uh, are more relevant in a cultural context like ours. Type the word loneliness into Google and you'll find numerous blogs and articles arguing that we're in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. Not just a loneliness blip, an epidemic. The Australian Psychological Society has found that one in four Australians are lonely and according to a recent study commissioned just earlier this year by the Australian Red Cross, a couple of months ago, almost half of us are feeling low levels of social connection leading into the Christmas season, up two-thirds from this time last year. And maybe you're feeling it. We're more connected by technology than ever before, yet we feel less known, loved and understood. And for some of us, Christmas only accentuates the feeling of being a stranger, even in our own families. We're meant to feel warm fuzzies as we gather with the people who are supposed to know us best, but the reality is that for many of us, these moments can be hard, always threatening to descend into well-worn conflicts and misunderstanding. And if we scroll through social media, we'll only make the feelings worse. Apparently, we're the only ones not having a great time. Outside the Christmas phenomenon, we're surrounded by strangers. We hardly know our neighbours, preferring a trip to the shops than 
knocking on the door next door to ask somebody for that ingredient we're missing. And although lots of research suggests that it can be good for your health and your happiness to form relationships with people you don't know, and especially with people who are different than you, in our digital world, the online algorithms keep pairing us up with like-minded people whose perspectives we already share. We fear strangers, we educate our kids about stranger danger, we tell stories, stories of monsters who follow young girls through the woods on their way to their grandmother's house with basketfuls of provisions. Our culture talks a big game about inclusion and community, but in the front lines of our lived experience, we often feel like strangers. And when John begins his account of Jesus, one of the things he picks up, one of the themes he picks up is this idea of being strangers. Only he's not talking so much about being strangers from one another, real as this is. He's talking about something deeper, something more fundamental, something that helps to explain all the other feelings of estrangement that we have. And it's this. We are estranged from God. Uh, John says this in um, verse 10. We're going to be looking especially at verses 10 through 13 tonight. And so if you've closed up your Bibles, you might might like to meet me in John chapter 1, verse 10. John writes this. He says, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. God is a stranger to the world, not because God's unknowable, some kind of distant, benevolent force that keeps the world from falling too far off the rails. No, he was in the world, John says. He's the creator God through whom the world came into being. And this God becomes present in and to his world. That's one of the big things that John's emphasizing in these first verses. Look back in verse 1. The Word was with God, John says, and the Word was, in fact, God. Verse 3. Without Him, not one thing came into being. And then it goes down in verse 14 to something of a climax in these verses. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, lived among us. The one who made the world, the one by whom everything came into being, himself comes into the world, John says, in a recognizable form, in human skin. A baby born in a Bethlehem stable so that we might know God. I think we're meant to feel a little bit here the tragic irony of this. In Jesus, God doesn't come to a world that he's unfamiliar with. He knows its every detail. He crafted the pattern on every leaf. And yet the world did not know him. Or maybe to put it a little bit more provocatively, the world did not want to know him. It's not like an episode of Undercover Boss or something where God disguises himself to 
try and make it out to his employees that he's just like one of them. If you read the Gospel of John, you read on about Jesus, he's all the time telling people who he really is. But many of the people he speaks to just don't want to know it. Because it's not just that humans are ignorant of God, lacking information about who he is and what he's like. There's some truth to this, but it's not the whole story. To say that the world did not know him is to say that the world is cut off from him, estranged from him, willfully out of relationship with him, convinced that life is better off lived with him away from it. We might not say it out loud, but we live in ways that communicate our feelings no less clearly. What right does God have to have any say over my life? What right does this God who created me, who gave me no choice of my existence or the circumstances in which I would be born, what right does he have to demand a place in my heart? Well, that's what the Bible calls sin. And sin is the neural pathway that humanity has been following ever since their first parents, Adam and Eve, walked down the road of rejecting God's rule over their lives and disobeying his commands. That disobedience, Genesis chapter 3 tells us, right at the beginning of the Bible, made it impossible for you and I to maintain a relationship with God and him with us. God expels Adam and Eve. He sends them out of the Garden of Eden, the place of his presence, because he knows that sinful people can't bear to live in the white-hot presence of a holy and perfect God. And ever since then, the Bible tells us we've been estranged from God, cut off from relationship with him. We're so blinded by our sin that even when God moves into the neighborhood, there's a great risk that we'll just fail to notice who it is who knocks on our door. I think that's the point that John gets to in verse 11 of this passage. Even the people who should have known that God had turned up on the scene, even the nation of Israel, those to whom God had showed incredible kindness throughout the Old Testament, The people who were his own missed the memo. He came to that which was his own, John said, and his own people did not accept him. The consequences of our estrangement from God run deep and wide, deep in that God never intended us to be able to live without him. It's why we all, sooner or later, die Because we need God as much as we need oxygen. It's just that oxygen makes its absence felt a little more quickly. And wide in that every part of human life is impacted by our estrangement from God, including our sense of being strangers from one another, including our feelings that our relationships are broken down with each other. And that's where John starts. But he doesn't finish there. After saying that there's this universal condition, this experience of God being in his world and being rejected by the world, he says, actually, but 
And that but's pretty important for verses 12 and 13 because the second thing that John wants us to see is that Jesus came so that strangers can become family. Not just friendly acquaintances, not just neighbors on speaking terms, not even close friends. Jesus comes so that you and I might go from being strangers of God to children. You see there, verse 12, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. In the distance of our estrangement from God, there's hope. Because God always intended to surmount that distance between himself and creation. And his goal is nothing less than to bring us into the family. Being children of God means obtaining all the privileges and rights that come with being part of the family. John says that Jesus gives us power to become children of God, or perhaps more helpfully, the right to become children of God. With the implication that this really does change things. Our status before him really does shift. It means experiencing the love and acceptance of God the Father without fear of that love being exhausted or of wearing out our welcome. It means being known and not rejected. One of our deep longings, I think, is to be known and accepted. But conversely, one of our deepest fears is that we might be known and in being known that we might be rejected. If they really knew me, we think, and we go on and hide the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, too scared to let ourselves be really vulnerable. But a child doesn't need to be afraid of being rejected by their father, at least not by their perfect heavenly father, who has brought them into the family with the full status of belonging. It means having the kind of intimacy with uh, a relationship that's depicted in this famous photograph from 1963 by a photographer named Alan Stanley Tredick, which depicts, you can see, a young John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting under the Oval Office desk while his father, President John F. Kennedy, attends to presidential business. Now, I don't know about you, but... I couldn't get an appointment with New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian if I tried, let alone with the Prime Minister or the President of the United States. And even if I could, I'd probably have five minutes and be forgotten by the end of the day. But you know who doesn't need an appointment to turn up at the Oval Office? The Sun or the daughter of the president. And you know who doesn't need an appointment to get the ear and attention of the one true living God? A son or daughter of him. Children of God. Those who have the father's ear and attention, the father's care, 
And this means, fourthly, that we share in all the blessings that belong to God, including the promise of resurrection life. The people for whom this is true, John says, are those who receive him. Or to put it in other words, as John does, the people who believe in his name. That expression would have made a lot of sense to John's original hearers. In the ancient Near Eastern world, someone's name was more than just a label. A person's name was their character, their person, their identity. And so to believe in Jesus' name is to accept him as he shows himself to be, to take him on his terms, to trust his claims to be truly God the saviour of the world and the only one worthy and competent of being king of our hearts. And those who put their hope in Jesus go from being strangers to being welcomed, accepted and assured. But how does he do this? How does Jesus bring people who are distant from God into the family? That's what we're going to look at as our third point. It happens because Jesus becomes the stranger. We are, I think, sometimes so familiar with the Christmas story that we miss the surprising realities that it describes. Actually, I think the Christmas story is in some ways the ultimate stranger story. And yet, uh, sorry, it's a story, Christianity claims, of God turning up in his world of God making his presence known. And yet he turns up in a backwater town in modern-day Palestine in the midst of military occupation, poverty, and oppression. He turns up some 400 years after the last recognizable moment of his speaking and presence with his people in Israel's history. That had been a long silence for a people who were defined by The fact that God was their God. The claim that they were the people of God who lived before his presence. But here he was, no longer far away, no longer a stranger, no longer detached, uninvolved or unconcerned. If you were God, how would you have announced your arrival? I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been like this. God turns up via a pregnant, unmarried teenage girl, engaged to a man wrestling with the knowledge that the child she bore was not biologically his own. God turns up in Bethlehem, away from the bright lights of Jerusalem, the publicity and the fanfare associated with royalty. Sure, there's fanfare of another kind, hosts of angel choirs praising God and announcing peace on earth. But do you notice who they appear to? Their audience is a bunch of wandering shepherds in the fields. Nobodies in the Roman Empire. And these shepherds make haste to meet this new king and can't quite understand why there's not a Disneyland-length queue forming outside the stable. The only other guests, the only other visitors we're told about are also strangers, magi from the east, whose attention to astronomical phenomena 
leads them in search of a king that no one else seems to have paid too much attention to. Before Jesus can even understand what's going on, his family are forced to flee to Egypt as refugees, escaping the spiteful cruelty of a king who will stop at nothing, not even the slaughter of innocent children, to maintain and sustain his puppet rule. And if you know anything about Jesus' life, you won't be especially surprised. Because for the most part, Jesus' life and ministry will continue the way it has begun. Marked by the fact that he is a stranger. Krish Kandar, a a British social entrepreneur, author and theologian who's written a really helpful book called God is Stranger. He asked this question, he says, Why does God choose to turn up in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, to a couple of nobodies in the middle of a census to a country in conflict. Here's the news. God deliberately planned to show up at the wrong time in the wrong place. God is Emmanuel. God is present. God is with us. But God is also hidden, set apart unassuming. Do you see where all of this is leading? Jesus becomes the stranger so that you and I might become family. The Son of God with all the fullness and capacity, all the overflowingness of divine life takes on the frailty and frustration of human life, a life of misunderstanding a life of suffering, a life of rejection, a life that knows even the experience of death. As one Christian thinker put it, Jesus, the Son of God, goes into the far country. He enters a strange land. He takes our estrangement to himself and he does it so that we might have a place as children in the family. That right there is the meaning of Christmas. And it's what I think makes the Christian gospel so remarkable. Other philosophies, of course, and religions and worldviews have diagnosed the human condition. They've seen some of the problems. They've pointed them out. But none of them have a solution, an answer like this. Almost always they're a version of reinvent yourself. But Christianity says stop trying to fix yourself by your own power. The only genuine fix is to let the one who became a stranger at Christmas, the one who is intent on leading you home, bring you into the arms of a father who loves you, who will transform you and who will never let you go. Verse 18 of John 1, the verse that we're going to spend more time in on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, says that Jesus is the one who is close to the Father's heart. And if you translate those Greek words literally, it just means that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. 
That's how close he is. And that's the place to which he leads us. And the more that you get this, as we say sometimes in this church, the more that you drink from this fountain, the more that you let the reality that you are a stranger from God, but a stranger who's been brought into the family and given the position of a child, of someone known and loved and welcomed. As that happens, you may gain a remarkable ability to welcome other strangers, to welcome other people in. And maybe that will be for you people first that you meet in the Christian community. Almost 10 years ago uh, to the day, the 25th of December 2009, Ali and I were on our honeymoon in Europe. And we'd driven into Paris on Christmas Eve, which was a feat in itself. And we thought to ourselves, we are going to go to church on Christmas Day. We looked up a church that we could go to and we trekked across the city on Christmas morning and arrived at this church where the entire service was in French. We understood none of it except that one of the Bible readings was from Isaiah 9 and only because enough words in that Bible reading seemed to sound like the English words. Wonderful counsellor, everlasting God, prince of peace, things that we could pick up that were the same. After the service, we met a number of people and it became pretty quick, uh, fairly apparent pretty quickly that we couldn't speak French and so the conversations usually petered out. But one couple came up to us, introduced themselves, found out that we only really spoke English and then started speaking English back to us. It turns out they were a couple who had moved over from the UK. He was there on diplomatic assignment and they said to us, nothing will be open in Paris on Christmas Day. You must come to our house and have lunch with us. And so we took their offer and we jumped in the car with them. We drove to their place and we met there another family from church who only spoke French. And so this family spent the whole day translating our stuff from English into French and their stuff from French into English. But we were welcomed into their family. And it has been for me one of those transformative experiences of hospitality. One of those moments of realizing just what kind of a welcome we can provide. And perhaps for you, there's opportunity this Christmas season to think about ways that you might welcome somebody in, that you might extend that same welcome that you have received from God to somebody else. And perhaps that person will be someone who is from the Christian family, but perhaps actually it will not be. And I suspect actually that one of the things that we get from a passage like this is that Jesus invites us to a more radical hospitality. Because he goes into the far country, to the lost and lonely to the left out and left behind. He goes to us in order to bring us in. 
And it may well be that you have opportunity to extend that kind of radical generosity and hospitality to somebody else who is down and out, somebody in need, somebody who is a stranger, and yet, like you and I, is a person that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to welcome into his family. And so let me pray. Father, we are astounded that we can even call you our Father. We know that that is a gift. That on our own merits, on our own strength, we're people who are distant from you. But because of your great love that you show for us in the Christmas season, we can be called your children. We thank you that being called your children is not just a name, but it comes with all kinds of privileges and status and significance and care and love, a new family that comes to us in your people. We praise you that we have security in this relationship. And so for those of us here tonight who have been feeling lonely, who feel the sense of being a stranger in their lives at the moment, Would you remind them of the depth of your welcome? And Father, strengthen each of us to be the kind of people who can extend the welcome that you've extended to us, to other people. People in need of your hospitality, of your kindness and grace. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.